On August 20th, 1979, Bob Dylan released his 19th studio album, Slow Train Coming. Show of hands, anyone own this album? Okay, a few. We're not going to kick you out this morning. We might kick you out next week, though. So um, that was a joke. That was a joke. He released this 19th studio album, and it was much anticipated because it was his first album that he had released since he had experienced a kind of conversion to Christianity. And so the lines and lyrics of this particular album in 1979 were informed by this new faith of Christianity that had overtaken Dylan's life. And the very first song on this album is a song entitled, Gotta Serve Somebody. And if you've never heard the song before, I'll give you a little bit of taste. I'll give you a small taste of this particular song. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Now, I don't know if you like Dylan or if you can understand half of what he's saying in his songs, but I like this song. I like this song because as the song continues, Dylan names different people and places in life, but that chorus hits you every time. You're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And before you know it, by the end of that six-minute track, you begin to let that chorus form a groove in you. And before you know it, you're asking some deeper questions and you're reflecting on some deeper things about your own life, about who you're really serving. In other words, this song is a discipleship song. Because this song creates a discipleship moment. It, It creates this moment where we are confronted with some deeper questions about who we're really following and what we're really doing with our life and where we're really going and who is leading us there. And sometimes these discipleship moments come through songs and then sometimes these discipleship moments come through scripture in fact our text this morning in luke chapter 6 is one of those discipleship moments because it's a discipleship text we're confronted with some deeper questions about our lives by this passage of scripture and luke has been preparing us for this moment for several chapters now Just a couple chapters before, in Luke chapter 4, we read about this moment in Jesus' ministry that really launches his ministry, where he is in the synagogue, and he opens a scroll, and he goes to a verse in Isaiah, and he lets people know who he is and what his ministry is about. That he is bringing release and liberation and the year of the Lord's favor in this moment through this person. This is who Jesus is. This is what his ministry is about. And then you move over to chapter 5, and we read about a variety of call and controversy stories. 
Some people accept Jesus and some people oppose Jesus. In other words, if if chapter 4 is all about who Jesus is and what his ministry is about, then chapter 5 is about who and how people responded to Jesus. And then we get to chapter 6 and we move a little bit closer to this discipleship text. Because we read in chapter 6 that Jesus goes up on a mountain to pray all through the night to pick his core 12 who are going to be the core of this new movement that he is launching in the world. And he comes off the mountain and those 12 are around him, but then we also read that there are disciples who gather around him who want to hear him, and there's also even crowds gathered around him that want to be healed by him. And then in verse 20, there's a small detail in the text that Luke gives us that we shouldn't skip over. Because he says there, looking at his disciples, he said. Jesus is about to speak words directed to the men and women who are following him and who are trying to shape their lives around him. This is a discipleship moment, what we're about to enter into in this sermon that Jesus is about to teach. And we know this is a discipleship moment, not just because of the way that Luke frames this next chunk of text, but also by the content of teaching that is actually there. You see, in the ancient world, if you were a disciple of someone, that meant you had a rabbi, you had a teacher. And every teacher had a set of teachings. You see, being a disciple of a rabbi or a teacher meant that you would follow this individual around to to learn how to live from them. But you weren't just watching what they did, although that was important. You were also listening to what they taught. Because the teaching of a rabbi was a significant part of the discipleship process, the teaching of a rabbi was the distinctive component that the disciples were called to live out. That was the thing about the teaching of a a rabbi. The disciples who were following this rabbi were listening. They were trying to hear their rabbi with the intention of living out that teaching. When I was in high school, I dropped all the sports that I was playing to focus on one sport just golf. I I decided that I wanted to play golf in college and the only way that I was going to pull that off was if I dropped all other sports to focus on this one sport. And so part of this change in focus was also a change in teacher. I changed the instructor that I was learning from. So I had been visiting one teacher on one side of town and then I decided to get a new teacher and I drove to the other side of town. And I still remember the first time that I went for my first lesson. It was a really hot summer day, and the range was just filled with golfers. And at the end of the range was the pro that I took lessons from. And he was standing there under a tree waiting for me. And I went, and I set down my bag, and he already had a bucket of range balls ready for me. And he had me begin to hit a few golf balls. And he watched, and he had me hit a few more. 
watched a little longer. I was waiting for when the actual teaching was going to begin. And after several minutes of him watching me hit golf balls, he stopped me and he said, Well, Wilson, we're going to rebuild your whole swing. Which wasn't what I was hoping or expecting to hear. And I think he saw the the shock on my face and I felt a little bit of resistance because that resistance was coming out of this place of I had been learning from one teacher for a few years, but now this change in swing was kind of, it felt like a betrayal of my previous teaching. And this teacher knew that I had changed teachers and so very sympathetically he said to me, Wilson, I understand you've had a teacher before. I'm a different teacher, and I'm going to teach you some different things. So you're going to have to trust my teaching. And then he did something interesting. He, he turned me around, and the range was filled with people, and he began to point to different individuals. They learned from me. They learned from me. They learned from me. And they were yards away and he told me that he could stand on that range and watch different golfers swing their club and just by watching their swing he could tell if he had taught them or not in other words his distinctive teaching style and content shaped his students into certain kind of golfers his distinctive teaching shaped our lives in certain specific, tangible ways. And so when Jesus begins to preach this sermon in Luke, we need to lean in because what we're getting here is some distinctive teaching from Jesus. We're getting some distinctive instruction that's intended to shape our lives in specific and tangible ways. And so we should lean in and listen to what Jesus teaches us. That this teacher, this way of Jesus, is a way of Jesus where God's favor and blessing show up to some of the most unexpected people. And the people who seem to most have it together are the people who should be most concerned. That the way of this teacher, the way of this Jesus is one where goodness and blessing and prayer are to be offered not just to our friends but also to even our enemies that this way of jesus the way of this distinctive teacher is one where mercy and forgiveness and generosity are to be lived out expecting nothing in return. And that condemnation and showing partiality and only being kind to our kind is not the way of this teacher. That disciples of this teacher are to live as reflections of the mercy of God to the world. This is a discipleship moment. This teaching is this distinctive moment for the men and women who are listening close to begin to learn that their lives are intended to take on the distinctive shape of this distinctive teaching.
which is not as easy as we sometimes may make it out to be. Because if there's one thing that I know for following Jesus for a while is that his teachings are not always the easiest to embody and live out. In fact, I think Jesus knew just how difficult his teaching really was by the way that he ends this sermon in Luke chapter 6. Because right there in verse 39, there's an interesting detail that we shouldn't skip over. Luke tells us, and then he told them a parable. Some translations put, then telling them a parable. But what's really interesting about this, these last ten verses of this sermon is that Jesus doesn't tell one parable, he tells four parables about blind guides, specks of sawdust, bad fruit, and faulty foundations. In other words, there's a sense in which that Luke sees all four of these parables as going together, as held together in some way. And my reading of these last ten verses is that the thing that holds them together is that I think they all reflect and represent barriers to true discipleship or obstacles or challenges or temptations to true discipleship. True discipleship being men and women who are trying to live out the ways of Jesus in the world. The first barrier or obstacle or challenge is what I would call blind discipleship. Blind discipleship lives out that verse, can a blind person guide a blind person? Will they not both fall into a pit? Blind discipleship is is the temptation for us to never really admit who our teachers really are. Blind discipleship is the temptation to never be honest about the people who are really instructing and guiding our lives. I remember when I was training to be a chaplain in Texas about a decade ago, one of the exercises that our instructor led us through was that he had us pull out a blank sheet of white paper, and then he began to ask us a series of questions, kind of having us write out some foundational beliefs of our life, foundational beliefs about suffering, about faith, about finances, about church. And then after we had answered some questions and our answers were on this white sheet of paper, he had us draw a box around every sentence or statement and then draw a line directly below it to the bottom of the page. And at the bottom of the page, what we were supposed to do is to write the person, the people group, or the experience that taught us that foundational truth about life. And as I began to write different names and different experiences and different people groups, at the bottom of the sheet of paper was a list of people who had taught me in ways that I had never really known or recognized. It was this aha moment for me to see at the bottom of this sheet of paper that my life of foundational beliefs was held up by all different kinds of people, places, and experiences. And I think the temptation for disciples of Jesus is to never be honest about all the people who are really teaching us. 
Because I think one of the, the biggest lies that we're taught is that we're largely individuals making our own decisions, and we don't ever recognize all the people who are influencing us and teaching us and guiding us. But here's the deal. Everybody is learning how to live from somebody. And so the call of disciples, the call for us, is is to be men and women who are honest about all the different people who are really teaching us, and then to run that teaching through the filter of Jesus. Does it fit the life and message and ministry of Jesus or not? Because some of us are following people right now who are going to lead us into a pit of a pointless life. I think the second barrier or or obstacle that this text reveals to us this morning is what I'm going to call backwards discipleship. Why do you try to take the speck of sawdust out of your neighbor's eye without first removing the log or plank in your own eye? Backwards discipleship is the temptation to try to turn everyone else into a follower of Jesus while you yourself never bothers to try to become a follower of Jesus yourself. It's like a person whose house is on fire and they run next door to tell their neighbor that their smoke alarm is going off. It's like a person who who peers over the fence of their yard and they begin to point out all the ways that their neighbor did not trim their shrubs appropriately. And all the while, you're growing a jungle in your backyard. I mean, this is, this is a real temptation. I think this is the most tempting one because this is the easiest and it's kind of the most fun, right? Because with this one, we don't really have to look inward. We can only look outward. And it's a lot easier and it's a lot more fun to meddle with other people's lives than to deal with the mess of our own lives. It's like the person who's really bothered that someone's gossiping, and so they go and they tell all their friends how much that upsets them that they're gossiping. It's like the person who's upset with someone for being exclusive, and then they only invite their own friends over to their house to tell them how much it bothers them. It's like the person who reads a verse of Scripture or listens to a sermon and they think of all the other people who need to hear this sermon without ever thinking that they might need to hear that passage of Scripture. It's like the person who doesn't ever deal with the own mess of their lives and so they end up messing on everyone else's life. The call of discipleship is to... Do your own work first. The call of discipleship is to realize that specks of sawdust and logs are made of the same material. In other words, thank you, I got an amen. I knew I'd get one this morning. In other words, disciples realize that the thing that so upsets you about them very likely has made its home in your heart. There's two. I'm, I'm on a roll right now. Right? The thing that so bothers you about them, 
is probably something that you haven't dealt with in your own life. So let me say this in love, and I'm going to go for my third amen. Quit trying to do other people's work without first doing your own work. There we go. Okay. I'm good. I can end the sermon now. That was good. I've never gotten three amens, so this is, this is good for me. I think that there's a third and final barrier that we need to be honest about that I think is embedded in this teaching of Jesus. And that's what I call bogus discipleship. I had to keep the alliteration alive. I had those bees going. I just went with that bogus discipleship. No good tree can bear bad fruit. And no bad tree can bear good fruit. This temptation of bogus discipleship is the temptation to spend all of your time dealing with the externals of your life, but never dealing with the heart level. Because it's always out of the abundance of our hearts that our mouths and our lives speak. This one is difficult because we can put bumper stickers on our car. We can hang Bible verses in our house. We can play praise songs. And yet inside, we never get touched. We can be so obsessed about externals that we begin to rot from the inside. And so you can have the Jesus fish on your car, but you still have toxic road rage that you've never dealt with. That you can have a Bible verse in your office, but still treat your employees unjust. That you can be and say all the right Bible verses, but be so wrong in all of your relationships. This is why some people can go to church their whole life and still be as bitter and hateful as the first day they walked into the church. The call of discipleship is to allow the power of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, the power of the Spirit to change us from the inside out. And let me just speak from personal experience. God wants more than just your head and your hands. God also wants your heart. And it's then, when we're transformed from the inside out, that the fruit that we will produce will be good fruit. And it's with that final parable in mind, we can actually hear this question of Jesus this morning. Because this question, this final parable, creates this discipleship moment for us. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? I think Jesus has a smile on his face at this point. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Jesus wants men and women to be disciples of Jesus who don't just come to Jesus, who don't just hear the words and teaching of Jesus, but who also live out 
the teaching of Jesus. Or my favorite translation, who put my words into practice. And I love that translation because I think that gets at the heart of what discipleship is. That discipleship is about men and women choosing to practice and attempt and try out the teachings of Jesus in their everyday life. Discipleship is not about perfection. Discipleship is about practice. Discipleship is not ultimately about a destination. Discipleship is ultimately about a direction. And disciples have chosen to direct their lives around the person of Jesus in all that they do. Because here's the deal. As Jesus goes on to teach us, we don't get to choose the storms that we will go through, but we do get to choose our foundation. And so this morning, this text is a discipleship moment for us because it forces us to ask some deeper questions about our lives. Because everybody's going to have to serve somebody. So will you... And will I and will we serve Jesus as Lord? Everybody is learning how to live from somebody. So will you and will I and will we learn how to live from Jesus? Anybody, anybody can say Jesus is Lord. But will you and will I and will we actually do what he says? Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that you were patient and generous and merciful. So may your mercy meet us where we are today. Not to scold us or to shame us, but to welcome us back on the path of following you in all that we do. May your life and teaching and ministry, may your death, burial, and resurrection May the faithful witness of the men and women who have gone before us walking the way of Jesus, walking out the mercy of God in the world, may that call us back to our path today and call us back to the foundation that will be the only foundation that will stand in any season and any storm. And that is in your son Jesus alone. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.